Welcome to Eurocron, a podcast about people whose names you may not be familiar with now, but you will remember their stories. Hi, I'm Scott Pitney, the host for Eurocron. So, without further ado, let's jump right into our next extraordinary story. My next guest on Eurocron is Joan Sullivan Garrett. Joan is the founder and chairman of MedAir, the world's largest integrated aviation and maritime provider of medical, travel, and safety services. As a flight nurse, all Joan wanted to do was save lives. She never set out to be an entrepreneur, yet during a rescue mission in 1984, the loss of a young patient compelled her to somehow, someway, improve remote emergency medicine. What followed was Joan's pioneering of telemedicine, which some call aeromedicine, through her startup MedAir, credited as the world's first global emergency response center. Nearly 40 years later, MedAir remains the gold standard and go-to for in-flight medical emergencies around the world, whether 36,000 feet in the air or in the middle of the ocean. But this is more than a book of business. The title, One Life Lost, Millions Gained, is Joan's journey through a difficult childhood, her Irish roots, her flight nursing escapades, and the challenges of single motherhood while building her company, not to mention the glass ceiling of the 1980s, which she rose above. She shares some jaw-dropping adventures along the way. I've been very excited for this interview along with Joan's amazing journey. Any product or service to me that saves lives definitely gets my attention. It is my great pleasure to welcome Joan Sullivan Garrett. Joan, welcome to Eurocron. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate being on your show. Well, I appreciate you being here. Um, there is a lot to unpack here, so let's get started. Where is a good place to start your extraordinary story, Joan? You know, I, I think um, yeah, when I when I think back about my life, and um, and I do that a lot just to stay in check with um, today versus yesterday. But um, I, I grew up on a cattle ranch, um, actually two different cattle ranches, and um, so remote wasn't anything unfamiliar to me, and. I knew that I had a love for animals, and whenever there was a sick calf or a sick dog or anything sick, a horse, it always fell to me to take care of them. And so I had a calling, and that calling was to be a nurse. And it wasn't a new calling. It was one that I observed within my family. My, my grandmother was a nurse. My mother was a nurse. And I seemed to be the one out of four children that became the nurse. So... My journey began um, probably taking care of someone or something, and um, throughout my childhood and my, particularly my teen years, I knew that nursing was was what I wanted to do. It took me a long long time to get there, but um, it was always something that I craved and and needed and wanted to do. Did you start with animals and, and that's where the caring type or caring kind of originated and then you and then it developed from there? Well, it, it definitely, I mean, I love animals and, and, um, and in my book I talk about, 
um, the relationship I had with animals and particularly my horses. Um, I would ride by myself in the mountains or in the, in the um, area where I grew up and I just spell my heart out to the horses. And, and so I talk about my most recent horse, Rosie, who is now 35 years old. And normally they only live to be about 20, 25 and she is now 35, and I call her my therapist because, you know, horses listen, but they don't talk back like dogs. You know, they just have that little inflection and they're listening. And, and um, so with, with that kind of an outlet as a child, um, you have that sense of, of caring. And, um, and I think that led me into my, my nursing career, which was, you know, it just was meant to be. It was what I can only reference as a calling. And having a grandmother that was a nurse for 36 years and a mother that was a nurse, um, it just came natural. So your horse is 35 years old. I've got to ask, do you think that is attributed to you having a nursing background in any way? Well, she has almost died a couple of times. Mm. Um you know, with, with an alfalfa stone and, and um, you know, various other things. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm committed to that little mare because she has saved my life so many times and has gotten me out of bad situations where lightning is hitting the ground all around me and, and she's like, uh, I want to get out of here. And I just dropped my reins and she took me out of a very difficult situation and, um, you know, just some reflection on how this little mare took care of me. And now it's my job to take care of her. And I, she lives on 40 acres and gets fed twice a day. And she has a good life now. That's interesting to me. I'm kind of a, um, I have a lot of interest in weather. And um, I know animals have, are, are ultra, ultra sensitive to weather and low pressure and lightning and thunder and things like that. You said you dropped your reins. Right, because I was trying to hold her back as she was, you know, kind of prancing back and forth, and and I could hear the pop and the trees falling and the and the and the thunder and the lightning hitting the ground all around me, and so I just said, "You're in control. Take me, take me out of here." And so I just, I didn't mean I didn't drop them on the ground. I just let them go, and she plowed right through a very difficult mountaintop down to the valley and took me right to my horse trailer. So, I mean, you know, she's a smart, smart animal. Incredible. Speaking of high adrenaline moments, you describe some high adrenaline moments in your book. For example, deployment into areas. You were hovering over a cliff on a skid while rescuing a mountain climber who had been attacked by a bear. Um, what? <laughs> Wow. Uh, Well, there's kind of a combination there, but um, uh, for your listeners, um, I was a flight nurse and that was something that was my aspiration as I started out in the emergency room and worked in trauma, taught paramedics, um, had a paramedic training program for a year or two and was a base station coordinator um, managing all the education for 11 different rescue units. And on one of my um, student trips where we have a clinical where they take out an ambulance and they respond to a car accident or, and I'm the supervisor and I observe how they respond to the scene and that they do things appropriately and they get checked off. And, 
And on one particular call, there was a um, helicopter called in because there was serious injuries at the scene. And I watched as this flight nurse and paramedic jumped out of this helicopter, came to the scene, intubated the patient on, and loaded him and, and flew off to the hospital. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I applied, was accepted, soon was promoted to the director of the um, flight personnel. And it was the most fulfilling career I can ever explain. I loved it. It was a, an adrenaline rush, but yet the training that I had to prepare me for that job was all physician-led. We were trained to do physician-level skills from suturing to putting chest tubes in to uh, cut downs to um, very, very invasive procedures, all because Arizona is a very remote area filled with, you, you could water ski and snow ski all in the same day in this state. It is um, vast, three major cities, Flagstaff, Phoenix, and Tucson, and everything in between is either Indian Reservation or it is um, uh, uh, just nothing there, little tiny towns. And so our program, our helicopter program and fixed wing program was designed to serve those remote communities. So the, pro the um, call that you were talking about was in the Superstition Mountains. And, um, and actually in this particular call, a lady was hiking with a companion and stepped on a rock which twisted and she fell down the mountain and injured her ankle to the point where she couldn't walk out. And she had some other injuries, so they called the helicopter. All of our pilots were Vietnam vets. And this is, you know, in the early 80s. And so they were so amazing in terms of their capability. And we were uh, flying in a, a twin star helicopter, it's a French helicopter that had twin engines. And of course, helicopters have skids. and we had um, to land above the location of the patient. And this time the pilot kept that, and this wind, of course, of, with the, the mountains, you have to balance the wind and you have a tail rotor that can't get close to the earth because then we all die. Um, but uh, so he kept that helicopter suspended with one skid on the side of the mountain and the other one was in the air. And my paramedic and I had to get out, stabilize the patient, put her into the helicopter and, um, and fly her. And, and I was thinking, oh man, <laughs> this, is, this is exciting, you know, to, to say the least. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah the, the type of calls we had were, uh, first of all, there was never, quote, a good call. They were all with, um, one foot in the grave and the other one slipping. I mean, it, these were all calls that had to have um, a higher level of care than perhaps was being provided at that time. I would imagine in a situation like that, I'm, I'm just trying to, which I could never do, but I'm just trying to put myself in that situation. And I would imagine there's a lot of compartmentalizing because you're one part of you, you're thinking medically and what I need to do to prepare, you know, when we get this patient to stabilize and calm him down, uh, ease the pain and all that. And the other side of me is going, you know, I could die yeah, at any moment. I mean, we're, we're in this crazy situation with this helicopter. 
talk about that. What what does go through your mind in those intense moments? Um, I never really thought until much much later in the, in in my career, but it, at the time I never thought about I could die. Mm. I just thought about the call and where we were going and what was what was the situation. And many times um, it was just an automobile accident or a fatality at the scene or um, Friday night <laughs> knife and gun club and uh, we're going to a reservation and pick up an Indian that was stabbed. Um, yeah, I, you just never knew what it was. Probably the ones that were the hardest were the pediatric drownings. Mm. Um, those, those, those were, and they were always beautiful, beautiful children and it's just you could see the families were torn apart at the scene, and so trying to stay focused to do what you had to do to save this child's life was, you know, all you thought about. But en route to the scene, we would always be checking our equipment. We, you know, after every call, we replenished our oxygen, we replenished our equipment, all of our drugs, and um, so we were ready for any given situation, any given age patient, and in some cases, multiple patients. But during this this time, we were checking our equipment, and then when we get to the scene, we would have to help the pilot land the helicopter, look for obstructions, look for people that were rushing to the helicopter so that he could immediately pull up, look at the landing zone, make sure there weren't any high wires there or what have you. So, um, no, I never thought about dying. I guess I put my, my life into the hands of the pilots. They were so good and so experienced that trusted them implicitly. Um, and, and of course, you know, the calls were varied as you can imagine, everything from, from well, I mean, you name it, we, we had it. Um, and, um, but it was, an, it was an adrenaline rush, and the fact is is that our training was so good and so complete that, you know, we, we had a great deal of confidence and we could really make a difference in people's lives. And in many cases, they would have never survived a ground transport. They had, we had an hour more or less from a, a major insult to the body to get them to definitive health care. And so our job was to intervene and get them to their destination as quickly as we could and as safely as we could. You know, I, I'm also thinking to myself, when I get home from work, you know, to unwind, we all unwind, you know, take the dog for a walk, uh, start cooking dinner with my wife and those kind of things. But your job, that is, a, there's a lot going on there, a lot of intensity. How, how, did, how did you unwind from a day like that? Uh, admittedly, um, you work really hard and, and our day, our tw we had three 12 hour shifts and four hours of continuing education each week. And we rotated nights and days and, and we rotated the type of helicopters and the type of fixed wing aircraft. Um, I'm going to say that we worked hard and we played hard. Um, and you know, it wouldn't be unusual that, you know, a group of us would get together and we would go to, um, this place called Studebakers, and we would dance and, you know, have a few beers and what have you, um, as long as we weren't working the next day. But we would get together as a group because who could you talk to? You couldn't really talk about what you did. You have 
patient privacy um, issues. Um, you know, and so we were very close, our paramedics, our nurses, our doctors, um, we were all very close. And um, so, you know, you, you, you worked hard, but you played hard too. And my kids were um, very much part of that. And spending time with my, my two sons, I was divorced. Um, so there wasn't a lot of partying going on when I had um, my, my sons. But we, we played nonetheless, and I never brought my work home with me um, to that extent. Um, they knew what I did, but they didn't really know the details, so I, I preferred it that way. Yeah, of course. Joan, let's talk about Tommy. Your experience with Tommy inspired you to start MedAir. If you would take us back to that day and what happened. You know, it's um, it's been 39 years, or almost 40 years since this happened, but it was in 1984, and it was August, and if anybody's been in Phoenix in August, it's really hot, probably 110, 115 degrees, and uh, around 1.30 in the afternoon, I was based at a, a hospital in Mesa, and uh, we, we were the crew were in a, uh, either in the emergency department working there in between calls or we, we were in our um, small offices. And we were scrambled to, um, scrambled means you were um, sent on a mission. And we were scrambled to a rollover accident in the Santan Mountains, which is a mountain range, um, dirt roads uh, south of Mesa, Arizona. and. The um, rollover had a ambulance on the scene, and um, they requested a helicopter. That's all we got. And then in route, we asked for more information, and they said they had a little boy that was thrown from the vehicle. They did not tell us at the time, but there was also a fatality, and then that was a 17-year-old driver that was a fatality. There were three other teenagers in the vehicle that seemingly were unharmed. I'd like to back up just a minute just to tell you that there are protocols and guidelines for what becomes a level one trauma at a particular scene. And any time that there's a fatality at the scene, every single person is identified as a level one trauma. So, that's why they called us um, initially. And halfway there, and that's a 20-minute flight from Desert Samaritan Hospital where we were based to the location. Halfway there, um, they said, oh, the little boy's doing fine now. Um, we don't really need you. We're going to transport him by ground. And um, thanks very much. And, and, and I was aghast. I was like, no, you can't do that. You, you, you know, children can compensate, but for a very, very short period of time, you cannot cancel us. They said, and they had control of the scene, even though I was advanced life support and they were basic life support. They had control of the scene. And we argued back and forth, and, and finally they just said, you're canceled. So we headed back to the hospital, and as soon as our skids touched the helipad, we were re-scrambled. Now we had lost 20 to 30 minutes of time. Mm. So we went back to the scene and 
um, it's one of those things that when I reflect on that story, I can smell the Jet A fuel from the helicopter as it lands, the dust in the air that's raised. Remember, it's dirt roads. And um, so as we landed, we were still hot, meaning that the blades were still turning. I jumped out with my trauma bag, and I asked my paramedic to go over and check out the teenagers. And there was a blue pickup truck um, where um, Tommy only, whose name isn't Tommy, it's Ralphie. But I used Tommy for all these years when I described why and how MedAir exists today. Um, Tommy was in the front seat of the pickup truck, and I introduced myself to him. And he had a very, very, he answered me and had a very, very high-pitched voice. And I knew that that meant that he had, uh, I asked the, the, the EMT, I said, you know, is this the voice he had when you thought he was doing better? And they said, yes. And I knew for a fact that he had a torn airway somewhere in his airway Mm. because that high-pitched voice was something I had heard before. When I was previously married to a thoracic surgeon and made rounds with him, I knew what that sound was. In addition to that, he had air under the skin, we call it crepitus. It's like the bubble wrap that you would find around a package. And he had that, and it was growing up his neck at the time. And I told him that we're going to go for a helicopter ride and that I needed to um, put an IV in him and that it's going to pinch a little bit. And he told me, that's okay, I'm tough. And so as I began to complete my assessment and got my IV ready to put in, he said, I'm not afraid. And then he coded. Mm. And coded means that he lost his heart rate and he stopped breathing. So I screamed at my paramedic to come help me get him out of the, um, well, let me back up just a second, because the thing that really was traumatic at the time was and again, I'm compartmentalized. I'm thinking about how I'm going to be treating this child. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm tough. I'm, I'm not afraid. And then he grabbed my collar of my flight suit. And he pulled me in front of his face. And he said, I love you. And then he coded. Oh. So it was everything that I could do to pull every arrow out of my quiver to save him. And even though it's 39 years ago, I still see his face. I still hear him. And it's tough, tough to relay that. So um, we got him to the trauma center, but it was, um, they couldn't save him. Um, his, His injuries were so, he had a multitude of injuries that there was no way he could survive that mortal um, injury to his, his little body. And I took myself off flight status for the next day or two because no call. I mean, I had all bad calls, a lot of children. But this one was entirely different, entirely different. And it just haunted me 
for the next day or so. And finally, I went back to the hospital and I uh, had access to the medical records. And so I found the phone number for his um, family and I called his mother and she answered the phone and I told her who I was and that, that I had a message for her from Ralphie. And I said, it wasn't meant for me, but he wanted me to tell you that he loved you. Hmm. So <clears throat> that was, we, we both cried at the time, and, and, um, and then it just stayed with me. You know, for the next year, I started thinking, how can we keep this from happening? How can we somehow, in these remote areas, how can we make a change? Well, training, yes. Better training. The, the, the EMTs probably could have had better training. Um, people who operate or work in remote locations, they need training. They need the right equipment to work with. And, and this just kept rolling around in my mind. And um, so there was legislation that was um, in front of the Federal Aviation Administration presented by the then Barry Goldwater, who was actually on a flight with a friend, and the friend got sick. <clears throat> I think he was a diabetic, and they didn't have anything on board the aircraft. Um, this was a commercial flight um, to take care of it, and he, when he saw the medical kit on there, he just said, this is ridiculous. We have to make a change. And so with all of the things that were happening at the same time, I took note of the fact that he wanted to change the medical kit. So I started looking into it, and I found out that the first aid kit on board commercial airlines was designed in, this is 1985, it was designed in 1924, and it had last been updated in the 50s. Oh, man. So I thought, well, wow, um, here we are in the 80s, and... AIDS was just now becoming so um, so out there. People were talking about it. And, and even in the medical community, I remember before this, there were times when we didn't even wear gloves. Or you went to the dentist and they never wore gloves. They put their finger in your mouth and all of this. You know, it, it was an awakening of the medical community and I think the general public at large. But yet, the first aid kits and there were no medical kits on board commercial airlines at the time. They were so lacking. It was just bandages and more bandages and maybe a splint, but no gloves, no protective breathing equipment, and all of that has come front and center today when we look at COVID. So, um, yeah, that was that's, it, it, it also struck a chord with me because at the very same time, helicopters, one in 13 across the country, were crashing and um, fatal crashes with friends of mine, people I knew in the industry. Mm. So there were, as a single mom, I was thinking, you know, my number may come up and I don't, I've got to make a change. And here's an opportunity to use the skills and the knowledge that I have as a flight nurse to maybe, maybe make an impact in an industry that has a need. And to me, that's the first rule of business is, is there a need? And that's, that's how I got started, um, was 
um, following this legislative process. And then they issued a notice of proposed rulemaking, which said we need even more than a first aid kit. We need a medical kit with certain drugs on board to treat medical emergencies like diabetic coma or diabetic or insulin shock or a heart attack maybe. And I thought, hmm, well, maybe there's a, a pony in this haystack, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's how I thought about it. So that's kind of how I got started. And along those lines, I understand that this involved Congress in pushing for defibrillators aboard planes. Right. Um, uh, well, I might add that I was quite unsuccessful um, at selling um, the medical kits that were going to comply with that notice of proposed rulemaking. I did have one sale, that was to People's Express, if anyone remembers that um, unique airline. Uh, hmm. But one one sale wasn't going to keep this business afloat. And I, I formally um, decided that this was going to be what I was going to do. And while I was still flying as a flight nurse, I decided to kick this business off and, and get it off the ground. And I had help. The, my employer um, actually gave me a line of credit and, um, and $25,000 um, investment. Uh, so that helped me um, get the business off the ground. And as I learned more and more about what was needed both from a training perspective as well as equipment perspective. When I saw drugs on board like nitroglycerin and uh, sodium bicarbonate and talking about a heart heart attack, I thought, well, where's the defibrillator? I mean, my goodness, you know, you're at 36,000 feet, somebody's having a heart attack, you've got drugs, but that's not going to do any good if if they go into the most common deadly rhythm, which is ventricular fibrillation, because the only treatment for ventricular fibrillation is a defibrillator. So I hit the speaker circuit. I began writing papers, white papers, speaking at conferences. One conference that I spoke at, I was on the stage with three medical directors from different airlines. And I said, it's not a matter of when or if defibrillators will be mandated for air carriers, it's a matter that they will be. And one of the medical directors spoke after me and he said, over my dead body. (laughs) So that kind of gives you the the, the resistance that I had going into this. But I wasn't going to give up because I knew that it took at least 20 minutes to land a plane if you had the right airport nearby or their airport that they were usually um, accustomed to flying into. And that would be a minimum time to land, even under an emergency situation. And knowing full well that if the heart stops beating due to ventricular fibrillation or whatever, then with every passing minute, you have a 10 10% decrease in survivability. So there was no choice here in my mind. They had to have defibrillators on board those carriers. And as a part of my building process of my company, and I know I'm going back and forth here a little bit, but it helps to understand that when I was a flight nurse and I 
like I said, pulled every arrow out of my quiver. I tried everything, but maybe my patient wasn't improving on this flight. I had the ability to call my ER docs, the same docs that trained me, and say, hey, you know, this is what I've done, this is what I've got, do you have any suggestions? And they would give me, you know, a, a litany of try this drug, try that, do this, do that. And and, and many times my patient would, would improve. Um, and so it was such a great resource. So I decided to create a third leg to my stool that had two medical equipment, training, and the third leg would be a service name that I called MedLink. And so I started MedLink and sold it to business aircraft owners first because the airlines weren't interested in talking to me. But ultimately, I was able to make inroads into the airlines and utilize that service. We started collecting data from those calls. Those data helped identify what are the most common medical emergencies, what do the airlines have on board to treat those medical emergencies, and all of a sudden the FAA started taking notice because we had the only data repository that I'm aware of in the world about what was happening up there at 36,000 feet on board commercial airlines. And so I went to Congress and I testified about what our data showed and also put the plea in there for putting defibrillators on board the aircraft. And it was a long, long process for that to happen because, again, they had to provide a notice of proposed rulemaking, get input from the medical community, get input from the aviation industry, how much would it cost, that's going to add weight to our aircraft, and that means more fuel burn. I mean, it's exhausted what has to go through before a rule is put in place. But that rule went into effect in 2004 in April. And so um, I would like to think that maybe I contributed a little bit to making sure that that, that happened and makes it safer for um, everyone who flies. And today, um, those emergency calls are about 3,000 calls a month, 36,000 calls a year into our center, um, our MedLink center. And these calls from the airlines are from flight attendants, pilots, flight engineers, dispatch, and our physicians take these calls 24-7. And most of the traveling public have no idea that we're there. We're taking care of them when they get sick on an airline and we're coordinating if perhaps it's a maybe a premature baby or if it's a, a stroke victim where you've got 90 minutes to get the um, clot busters. And so we are identifying the appropriate hospital, the appropriate airport the pilot makes the final decision because it's a safety issue, but we are doing all the groundwork, getting the ambulance to the airport. We're talking to the airport emergency responders. We're talking to the receiving hospital in many cases and letting them know that this is a potential stroke, stroke victim and we have a time slot that has to be met. I mean, so much we do is behind the scenes that the general public has no idea, but it's, it's saving lives. Um, all over the world. This is not an Arizona program. This is a global program. This is calls 
you know, flying over Azerbaijan. This is calls coming out of Johannesburg going to Rio de Janeiro. This is calls coming from Beijing, China. Um, it's 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 amazing to to see um, how this has morphed into what it has become today. That's incredible. I feel safer flying already just knowing that. Um, in going back to the defibrillator, you know, I understand um, how there's a process in making those decisions, but to me, it, that just seems like a no-brainer. I mean, if somebody has a heart attack on a plane, you know, unless somebody knows CPR. So, um, but from what I understand, defibrillators are much more effective, right? So, um, right. but but yeah, there's there's a process to all that, and uh, their their restrictions are are very tight. So, um, but wow. Well, thank you for sticking with that. that. That makes me feel a lot better flying, Jim. Well, I would say if there's any place to have a heart attack, it's on an aircraft, frankly, because you're probably within two minutes or less of getting defibrillated. And, you know, if you keep the 10-minute rule in mind, um, you know, even in our city streets, sometimes it takes longer for the EMS to get to you than 10 minutes. So um, I live in a remote area in Arizona, and I have a defibrillator in my house. <laughs> you know, and there's, you know, it's, it's just practical. They're inexpensive, and um, it's very simple. It prompts you to do what you need to do, and um, it, it saves lives. And, you know, with heart attacks being a, a fairly frequent occurrence in this country, um, it's, it's wise um, to know how long does it take your EMS to get to your home, and if you're in a remote area, you might want to have one at home. But it, it also um, was amazing to me that specifically CPR training wasn't required until the AEDs went into um, a law, into a final ruling. Then they um, required CPR training and AED training for the flight attendants. As a matter of fact, um, Medair received a contract over the Red Cross even um, to do uh, the training for United Airlines all around the world, and uh, 26,000 flight attendants we trained in the period of a year, year and a half. Oh, fantastic. Let's shift gears to the the book. Oh, before we do that, um, you mentioned that was the third leg of the stool. Did did I miss it, or or is there a fourth leg we didn't talk about? Nope, there's just three. Okay, all right, three legged stool. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so the book. You implemented a pacemaker during an intense emergency response. How did the news coverage from this event inspire your book cover? <laughs> well, um, that might have actually been the shot um, that uh, was done just following that. Um, yeah, it, I mean, that's that's typical, dragging that very heavy trauma back um, off the helicopter to replenish or, or what have you. Um, but, you know, in my flight suit and the helicopter um, getting ready for another flight. And to me, it was the best job I ever had in my life because I could use my brain um, it was, uh, uh, I was so well-trained. I was a very good nurse, very good flight nurse. 
and um, and I love the job and I'm happy and that's a happy picture there and I just felt that this book is dedicated to Ralphie this book is his life carried forward in so many different ways and so that's why I dedicated my book to him and I'm very blessed that his mother um, actually contributed to my book and gave me insight into that call that I didn't have before but the um, the pacemaker story was amazing um, because um, we had this incredible training. We had this incredible equipment on board that helicopter because of the rural and, and remote areas that we went to, we knew that some places would not have this type of equipment because they were just tiny clinics. They could maybe stabilize somebody, but they couldn't take care of them for any period of time. And this one patient, it was, um, I don't know if you're asking me about that call, but um, it was, it was a great example of the training that I had every week, the four-hour continuing education, and, you know, for people who dedicate their bodies to science, and, I mean, as a flight nurse, we, we did train on cadavers, and, and, you know, for those, some of those skills that could be applied to a real person, a live person someday to save their lives, and that was a perfect example. Um, we also had dogs that were on death row and, and going to be euthanized. And, um, and, and as you know, I'm a dog lover, and, but, um, you know, placing a pacemaker into the dog and their chest and everything that is anatomically relatively similar, um, it saved this lady's life. And I was able to perform that because I had a pacemaker um, and a pulse generator on the helicopter when the clinic did not have one and the physician said, hey, I've never inserted one of these. And I said, well, I have. I didn't tell him that I had only done it on a <laughs> cadaver or a dog, but, you know, I was willing to do it because if I didn't, this woman would have died. Wow. And as a result of that, she lived for another 11 years. We became pen pals. I, her son. Roger sent me apples, you know, every year from Washington where they, their primary home was. But it's experiences like that that, that you know, are just so gratifying. And, and that's why, yeah, helping save lives. And now instead of a one-on-one -on -one relationship with, with um, a patient, it's one on millions. And for so many years, people that know me or have benefited from the service or um, have followed my journey or listened to my stories, have um, always chorused, Joan, you've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. And so that, that's, that's how this one, One Life Lost, Millions Gained, um, came about. So your book, um, One Life Lost, Millions Gained, Forward, was written by Barbara Barrett who is 25th United States Secretary of the Air Force under President Trump from 2019 to 2021, comprising the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Space Force. Correct. Very impressive. How did yes. that transpire? Well, I've, 
I've known her since 2000, and um, and I met her when um, she was one of the judges for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And I remember talking to her, and I was, had been in business maybe, you know, 14 years at the time, and was telling her about the company, and she listened so intently and was so um, interested in, in what we were doing with Medair. And, you know, I, I didn't, there were many other very successful companies in the running. And, and so I thought, well, this is good experience to, to have this conversation. And um, as a result of that, in 2001, I did receive the Arizona Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And, um, and I always secretly was very grateful to her. And then last, in 2019, I went to an um, aeronautic um, aviation uh, dinner, and she was there. And at that dinner, they announced that I was going to be inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. And so I had the opportunity to speak to her, and, and she was just so warm and so friendly. And here she was, the Secretary of the Air Force, VVVIP, and, but yet when she talks to you, she's just very, very casual, very um, focused, and, and um, just very warm person. And so that's how I met her and, and then reconnected with her when I decided to write the book. And I said, would you consider um, writing my foreword? And she said, I would be honored. Wow. So that's how that happened. Joan, you are third generation Irish. Your great grandfather, <laughs> Timothy Sullivan, and great grandmother, great grandmother, Kate Burke, immigrated and settled in San Francisco, where you were born. I understand you have a funny story to share, something about stowed Irish cheese. Is that correct? Oh, yes, yes. Well, um, so the I Irish Air Corps, uh, based at Valdonnell Airport in Ireland, uh, in Dublin, it's outside the city, um, they are the um, Air Force for Ireland. And um, they... The um, Air Corps, Mary McElhaney, was the president of Ireland at the time, and um, she was also the head of the EU, and that rotates over a period of time. Hmm. So they purchased a Gulfstream aircraft so that she could uh, perform her duties um, with the EU, and with that aircraft was just an incredible contract I had with Gulfstream Aerospace, which produces these gorgeous jets. Um, uh, private business jets, and so they purchased a jet, and my services came with it for five years, training, medical equipment, and MedLink, and the Irish Air Corps uh, wanted to take advantage of, of all of that to add to the safety for the defense minister and President McElhaney, and so I thought, oh my gosh, um, we're going to train. And so I would go over there for year after year after year. Of course, it was always at the end of the budget year. Um, and it was always raining and it was dark <laughs> in the morning when we drive out to Baldonnell Airport. And I would have the pleasure of, of training the Irish Air Corps and having that as my lineage. I was just so proud and loved, um, you know, working with the Air Corps. They were so professional. 
they're military, so, you know, I kind of like guys in a uniform anyway, but that was really <laughs> special because after each class, we'd go to the officer's mess and have a Guinness, and I just really felt close to my family roots. Um, and ultimately, um, I had to turn it over to our office in London because, well, it was just more economical for them to do the training than, than for me individually as my company was growing to be out there training for a week. So... Um, but it was such a, an honor to do the training um, there in Ireland. And I trained them how to manage an in-flight medical emergency, gave them the skill sets, the AED training. We talked about um, different countries and travel medicine and, you know, how to mitigate risks um, for infectious disease and, and all of the things that, that um, we do as a company that would benefit the safety and security of this, of this um, um, president and the defense ministry. Hmm. Speaking of training, you trained the Disney flight crew in CPR emergency first aid and the use of defibrillators and received a personalized thank you from Mr. Michael Eisner himself. Very impressive. How surprised... Well, let me, be, um, oh, let sure. me um, make a small correction there. Yep. I did train the, the Disney flight crew, and as a result of that training, um, they were looking for someone to perform a, an executive-level overview course for all the Disney executives from all around the world. And so it was you know, about 180 executives flew into Orlando, Florida, and, and um, my instructors, myself, and all uh, for a period of one whole day, introduce them to all the safety aspects that, that um, are on board their aircraft and taught them the basics of the AED, how it works, the CPR. We demonstrated that for them. We had them actually build a first aid kit throughout the day with each topic that we, we, we talked and so at the end of the course, which was a day-long course, very intense and fast-moving, of course, you know, executives don't have a lot of it. Their attention span is like you've got to go boom, 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 <laughs> and go through the information. They got it. And by the end of the course, they had built their own first aid kit. And then following that course, I received a thank you letter um, from Michael Eisner signed by him. How surprised were you to receive that letter? Uh, very surprised, <laughs> actually. I was very surprised that someone would take the time to acknowledge um, the value of what Medair did. Very cool. Speaking of celebrities, I understand you have a connection with Harrison Ford. How do you know Harrison Ford? <laughs> well, I don't know that it's a connection per se, but okay. um, again, uh, through Gulfstream and the purchase of an aircraft through Gulfstream Aerospace, um, our training went with it, and I just wasn't going to let just anybody train Harrison Ford. So I stepped up, and I said, I'm going to do this training. <laughs> and it's a two-day course, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, we started off with, with um, you know, all of the, the basics of, you know, the body and how it works and everything else, and then we transitioned into, you know, AED and CPR and, and then oxygen systems and altitude physiology, and we talk about the effects of flight and all the different gas laws, and, and then the second day is into trauma and um, 
bandaging and splinting and, and um, medical emergencies and what have you. It's a very comprehensive course. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I was just so, so impressed. I've been around very famous people before, and, you know, some, some are real, some are not. And I can tell you he's very real. Um, and I always start off my class. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a flight attendant, you're a pilot, um, Harrison Ford, whoever, it doesn't matter to me. I just want to know what they want to get out of the course. And and I asked him, well, what do you do? And, you know, what? And, well, I knew what he did, but he said he was a carpenter. And I thought, yep, you were at one point. Really? Now you're pretty darn famous. But um, So I don't hmm. let that really influence me um, at all because – the course was the course, and he was there, and he was there to learn, and I was going to make sure that he got everything that, that they paid for. And But the thing that struck me was how humble he was and how respectful he was, and it was just he and his pilot that went through the training. And um, the next day, um, we usually started about 8 in the morning, and at the end of the first day, he said, you know, I've, I've got a commitment I've got to do, but would you possibly be able to start a little bit later tomorrow? And I said, absolutely. And so um, right on the dot, when he said he was going to be there, he was there and went through the remaining training. So um, took the test. <laughs> we always have a test. Um, it's great. Um, very, very nice man. That's awesome. That is so cool. Joan, you've received numerous inductions into several Halls of Fame and amazing awards. Among them includes, this is quite a list, 1997 Flight Safety Foundation Business Aviation Meritorious Service Award. And you briefly briefly mentioned already in 2001, Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Wow. 2005, Arizona State University Spirit of Enterprise Award. 2017 NBAA Meritorious Service to Aviation Award, International Aviation Women's Association Woman of Excellence Award, Hall of Fame induction during the 50th anniversary of Mesa Community College, your alma mater, 2019 International Air and Space Hall of Fame, and 2020 National Aviation Hall of Fame. What do these awards and recognitions mean to you? Good question. Um, I am humbled, first of all, that an industry um, would recognize the value that Medair plays in in throughout the world. And so um, I, I guess it's a validation that back in 1985, that you know, stepping off the cliff into entrepreneurialism and to take a risk, and um, it pays off. And I never did it for the awards. I never knew one if anyone would ever, any company would ever purchase my product. Um, uh, it was in many ways just a hypothesis because, you know. No one could believe that within 30 seconds you could talk to a physician flying over the Atlantic Ocean, and so it was it was a tough sell. It, it was a good 10 years, 
of slogging and, you know, flying around the world because, you know, planes don't fall off the face of the earth like Galileo said. I mean, they, they fly globally. And so I knew from day one this was going to be a global business because aviation is global. And because I never wanted to have one particular sector or one particular aspect of aviation put me at risk for failure, um, and I had plenty of failures along the way, by the way, and, and I think that's healthy because it keeps you, keeps you focused and keeps you um, making the right decisions because you learn from your mistakes. But um, we, I diversified into um, three basic markets. One was um, commercial aviation, which was a hard sell, a lot of rejection initially. Um, business aviation, this is, these are aircraft used for business as business tools um, to allow for companies to grow and to support rural areas in the country and or around the world. And these business aircraft um, provide that uh, for these companies and allow them to do business in a much more timely fashion than if they were flying commercially. And the third one was maritime, and, and we focused on the luxury yacht market. And uh, again, global. Uh, they could be in the Mediterranean, they could be uh, in the South Pacific Sea, they could be going around uh, the Horn of Africa. I mean, it's um, global in every sense of the word, but it also allowed me not only to diversify my products and services, but to diversify the market. So in um, when the Twin Towers were struck, aviation shut down, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be out of business. But, um, you know, it's a very resilient industry, if we, as we have seen with COVID. And um, if I could just point one thing out here to your audience is that I think before um, nurses were very much unseen, unheard, but always the strength behind patient care. And I, I am such a fan of nurses and promote them in, in so many areas that I can. They are the superheroes. And um, so I, I think that um, the company has certainly uh, changed the way medical emergencies aloft are handled and or at sea. And we've shifted the paradigm of what it means to have a medical kit on board an airline. In many cases, they're like a flying ER now because they have so many um, uh, avenues for treatment. And, and I'm very proud that we have these kits on board airlines all over the world and are supporting these customers all over the world. So it's, um, I guess it's recognized through these awards um, and... Um, while I may get the awards, I really credit the people behind it, the nurses that are in our control center, um, the doctors that take these calls and, and give our customers, the patients, the passengers, um, what they need and to help save their lives. And so the awards, in my mind, are recognition of the company and what it's achieved and the wonderful, great people within the company that um, they, they get the award. 
that's that's my belief. That's that's amazing. I know a lot of successful people too. They they credit their family. Uh, your husband Frank, your family. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he has his own chapter actually in the book. Oh. Um, okay. And he talks about uh, you know he he works for Joan Co. Joan Co. Um, and um, he was just uh, elevated in rank to the um, director of the high maintenance department. And um, so he's, he's a very special man. Um, he is an engineer in nuclear power and um, risk management. And um, he's, he's, he's a wonderful man and has been so supportive throughout my journey. And um, I guess it's a good example of the third, third um, time is the charm, because I've been married twice before. And, uh, and we've been married for 35 years. So, um, yeah, and my sons, oh, my gosh, my sons grew up in the company. They learned business 101 because they, they helped, you know, all along the way. And now they're great parents, and they have, have provided me with three beautiful grandchildren. And by the way, Frank said when he met me that um, I didn't come with baggage. I came with freight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yes. Now, Frank is very, very, very important in this that's, equation. That's great. It sounds like he has a great sense of humor as well. So we we get to what um, what I like to call our legacy question on your Quran, um, and that is: In fifty years, Joan, when people are listening to this podcast or maybe it won't be podcast by then, but whatever form of audio it is by then, what, what message do you want to leave for them? How, how do you want to be remembered? It's very simple. Um, I started out always wanting to be a nurse, and, and look where this career has taken me. But the best thing that could ever be said is she was a great nurse. Simple, That's my legacy. Simple, but yeah, so powerful. So powerful. The book title is One Life Lost, Millions Gained. And of course, we will have that information on the Yurkron website. Joan, can you um, offer some, some information to our listeners of where they can find the book? Well, um, the uh, book is listed with Amazon, both in a um, soft cover as well as an ebook. Um, we're noodling whether or not we want to do a, a um, audio. Um, and um, you can go to my website, uh, JoanSullivanGarrett.com, and if you want more information about, you know, what I've been up to, to follow, I, I do not have a Facebook account. I don't Twitter. I'm a little bit of a um, um, anti-social <laughs> media at the moment. I understand. I understand. Well, um, again, we'll have all that on the Eurocrom website, Joan. Thank you so much. That was a, an amazing conversation. I, I really enjoyed that, and uh, uh, I, I hope you did as well. That was um, 
that was an amazing, you have an amazing story and, and what you've done for the world is just truly, um, I'm grateful for you. I, I'm grateful that you save lives. Like I said, at, at the start of this podcast, any, any business or service that saves lives is, is just very inspiring. And, uh, you do great things for the world and, and, uh, we appreciate you. Thank you, Scott. Um, it was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. All the best. All the best to you.